Thank you. Let's have another big round of applause for our worship leader, Sean Higgins. I do like his fashion sense. Blue jeans, black t-shirt. Looks good. Looks very good. And thank you all for being here. Hey, give yourself a round of applause for being here this morning. A big round of applause. You could have been, oh, come on, you deserve bigger than that. You could have been anywhere today. You could have been sleeping in. You could have been having brunch. That's the thing people do, right? But instead, you chose to be here, and we greatly appreciate your presence with us here today. Uh, we are in part three of a three-part series called This Is Us. This has been a message series about us about human nature, <clears throat> and throughout this message series, we've been seeking to answer the question, are we human beings? Are we basically good? Because this is something we've all been told, some put along the way, that people are basically good. This is something that we probably want to believe, and we certainly know that people are capable of good, doing good works, tremendous acts of charity. <clears throat> but is there a difference between being capable of good and being good in our nature? And if there is a difference, well, how much does that actually matter? This is a series about human nature asking the question, are we, in our nature, are we basically good? Um, for the past couple of weeks, I've been telling you a little bit about my background and how I grew up in a Christian setting. I grew up in a church setting, and as a kid, I was presented with the essential message of Christianity, the core message of Christianity, essential belief. It's sometimes referred to as the good news or the gospel. Gospel actually means good news, but it is this message of what God has done for us. And it was communicated to me as a child, and I was taught that God loved me so much that He sent His one and only Son into this world to die on the cross for my sins. And that Son of God, His name is Jesus. He died on that cross. He rose the third day. He conquered sin and death. And if I put my trust in Jesus and what He's done for me, as opposed to trusting in my own goodness, then I will receive eternal life. The gift of heaven when I die, that gift of paradise. And so as a kid, I said, sign me up. No hesitation. That sounds great, right? Where do I sign? Give me a crown. I don't know how to write my name yet, but let's do this thing, right? It seemed like a no-brainer. But then you grow up and you realize that not everybody has that automatic response to hearing the gospel, to hearing the good news. And there are plenty of reasons why. And at the risk of being redundant, I'd like to repeat those three, three big reasons why, there are more than three, but three big reasons why people don't automatically sign up and say yes to receiving Jesus as their Savior. The first one is that people question the validity of the message. Of course they do. Of course they do. It's a big message. You're telling me this is God and that He loves me. He's got a son. The son came down. He died. He rose from the dead. It's a lot to process. It makes sense to question, wait, is this real? Can you back this up? Did you just make this up? Is there any kind of history that proves this? And so that's one reason why people don't automatically say yes to Jesus. Now, I need to take a little bit of time here and park on this point for a moment. If that's you, if that's you, I just want to let you know what your options are. You basically have two options. From this point forward, from this point until the moment that you die, you can go on being uncertain. You can have the questions, you can question the validity, but not really seek the answers. You can remain skeptical, you can remain uncertain, but not really seek after the answers. That's one option. It's just to continue to have these concerns, continue to have this skepticism, to continue to have these questions, but not seek for answers. And then you go through life, and then you die. And then after you die, you find out. That's one option. Not ever really seeking the answers, just having the question, then you die, and then you'll find out. I do not recommend this option. I do not recommend this path. 
Because once you die, it's too late to go back in time and retroactively receive Jesus as your Savior. And so you'll find out when you die, but by then it's, it's too late. So, so I would encourage you not to do that, not to, go, not to pursue that path, not to pursue that option. But that's one option. Just continue to have the questions without seeking answers. The other option is to have the questions and seek the answers. You know what? I've heard this pastor say that Jesus died for my sins, but I'm not going to believe that at face value. Let me dig into it. Is there anything in history, is there anything in recorded history that might suggest that what this guy is saying is true? That's the other option. That's the option that I would recommend. It's okay to have questions. It's great to have questions. It's great to have doubts. It's great to have a healthy level of skepticism, not just to believe what you're told about God automatically. But go ahead and put in the work. Do the legwork. Do the research. Figure it out for yourself. Figure out what you believe. And if you're going to pursue that, here's the tricky thing is to try to be as objective as possible without bias, to ask these questions. Does God really love me? Did He really send Jesus into this world? Pursue some answers. And so that's, that's the option that I would, would recommend. All right, I've spent a lot of time there. Let's move on to the second reason why people don't automatically say yes to Jesus, and it's fear or, or concern. Let's call it a concern. A concern about change. If I say yes to this deal, how is it going to change me? How is it going to change my life? How is it going to change my priorities? Because here's what's up, you know, like maybe I believe in all this stuff. Maybe it seems legit. Maybe I want to say yes to receiving Jesus as my Savior. But I've seen how some Christians act. You know, there's that group of Christians over there, and they're just so weird and self-righteous, and they're judgmental, and they're critical, and I don't want to turn into one of those. That's legit. Yeah, me neither, right? All of us in this room have had experiences with Christians. We're like, well, I don't want to be that type of Christian, right? So the fear of change or concerns about how will it change, how, if I say yes to Jesus, how will it change me, that's, that's legit, but don't predetermine how that change will manifest itself in your life. You don't have to become like that. I don't have to become like that. You know what I mean? That brand of Christianity, you don't have to become that. So we're going to talk a little bit more about this change process that happens as we get to the end of the message. Here's the third reason why. And as I've said the past few weeks, I think this is the biggest reason why people don't automatically say yes to receiving Jesus as their Savior. It's that we believe we're basically good. We believe that we are basically good. Maybe you're the exception to that. But we believe, we human beings, we believe that we're basically good. And if we're basically good, we don't view ourselves as needing a Savior. We have no use for a Savior if we believe that we're good enough to get into heaven on our own. And that's the belief that so many people walk around with. Maybe you're the exception to that, but you know people in your life. Maybe the majority of people you know have this belief at their core. Listen, I'm good enough. I compare myself to other people who are overtly evil, and these people don't even recycle, and these people are rude, and these people use cuss words. I'm better than that. So if there's a heaven, i got to be good enough to get in. You know, we play the comparison game, and we view ourselves as being good enough. That's problematic. That's problematic because what if we aren't basically good? Because if we aren't basically good, then we do need some kind of miraculous intervention, somebody to come in and do for us what we can't do for ourselves. We need to be, what's the word I'm looking for? Saved. We need to be saved. We need a savior. And so that's, that's really, I mean, guys, you, you, you figured it out. That's why we're doing this series is to realize that people aren't basically good. I might as well tell you it's week three. You've picked up on this already. You've picked up on this. I don't believe I'm just going to say it. I don't believe that people are basically good. I don't believe that. I know we're capable of good, and I know you're capable of good. And I've seen so many of you do like amazing things and charitable things and selfless things. I know you are capable of good, but we human beings, by our nature, by our design, by, I shouldn't say by design, by our default mode, we are not essentially good. Last week, I challenged you to do a little thought exercise. I'm going to give you a simpler one this week, okay? Think about this. 
Think about times in your life where you have been rude or mean or self-centered or just curt. You know that word curt? Kurt, I was accused of being Kurt years ago. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm Josh. Who's Kurt? I, oh, that's what it means. I had to look it up. I had to look it up. You learn things as you get older, right? <clears throat> Just to be a little bit curt <clears throat> or short-tempered, rude, mean. When's the last time you engaged in gossip? Think about that. How much effort does it require? How much intentionality? How much discipline does it require to be rude, to be mean, to be short-tempered? None. It's automatic because being rude, being curt, being short-tempered, being self-centered, engaging in gossip, it comes naturally to us. Nobody ever, <clears throat> nobody ever sat down, you know, December, late December, writing out their New Year's resolutions and said, this year I really need to work on being mean to people. I need to be more rude. We don't have to work on that because it comes naturally to us. That's how it works. But to be kind, to slow down and make somebody else's needs and wants the priority, to help other people, that requires what? Discipline, intentionality, effort, right? Think of it that way. Why are we so impressed when we see somebody sacrifice for the sake of someone else? Because it's not in our nature. We're not basically good. All this lousy stuff that people do comes naturally to us. But to be good, to be selfless, to be charitable requires intentionality, effort, discipline. You may have noticed <clears throat> that today's message is called, I Want <clears throat> What You Have, but it is sung to the tune of the Backstreet Boys hit song, I Want It That Way. Do you hear it now? I want what you have. Do you guys know that song? You guys are, okay. If you don't know that song, stop at CVS on your way home. And if you hang out there long enough, you will hear that song. It's one of the 18 songs they play on an endless shuffle, all right? <clears throat> but this is called, I Want What You Have, because this, wanting what someone else has, is a universal experience. Whoever you are, whatever your background is, whatever your faith is, or lack of faith system, or whatever, whoever you are, you know what it's like to want what someone else has. If you've ever used the phrase, must be nice, then you know what it's like to want what someone else has. You know what I mean by that? Must be nice. You're having that conversation with a friend or a coworker, or maybe you're having one of those, those kitchen conversations with your spouse, right? Oh, did you hear my brother? Did you hear he just bought a new car? And like, oh, he bought a new car, did he? How about that? Got himself a new car. It's funny because his old car was newer than my current car, but he got himself a new car. Must be nice. Must be nice. Have you said that before? Right? Must be nice. Oh, did you hear that family, that guy I work with, are going on a vacation, a big vacation this year? Oh, another big vacation! They went on a big vacation last year, didn't they? Where are they going? Oh, they're going to Hawaii. Oh. Must be nice, right? Or did you hear about the family down the street? They're moving out of the twin and they're moving up to northern Delco. Whoa. Ooh, la dee da. Must be nice. Must be nice. If you've ever said that or thought that you know what it is to want what someone else has, there's a word for this. It's called coveting. 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 And there's coveting and there's being jealous and there's envy and all these things kind of blur together a bit. But to actually want what someone else has, that's, that's coveting. And it can be an item. It can be a possession. It could be status. It could be attention. It could be praise to what, what, want what someone else has is to covet. Every once in a while, 
in the Schaefer household, our girls will ask for a pet. Can we get a cat? Can we get a dog? Can we get a cat? Whatever. And the answer is always no. No pets allowed in the Schaefer household. Because I just believe that pets belong in their natural habitat, your homes, okay? Keep the pets there, right? And so we're not a pet household. And so several years ago, our girls were on a stretch of asking for a pet, asking for a pet, asking for a pet. And then Holly and I found out that one of the girls' little friends got a pet. We're thinking, oh, great, how's this going to go over? And so we're thinking, you know, as parents, a teachable moment, teachable moment. So we sat our girls down and say, listen, we know you've been asking for a pet, but it's funny because it turns out your friend just got a pet. And here's what we want you to do. We want you to choose to be happy for that person. Make a choice. I know he's like, this is what you wanted and somebody else is actually getting the thing you... But, but just make a choice to be happy for that person. And we try to teach our girls this because, guys, we know as adults, this is not something that we grow out of. But if you can train yourself to make, I'm going to make a choice. Instead of wanting what they have, I'm going to make a choice to be happy for that person. I'm going to choose to say, well, good for them, and mean it, not sarcastically. Good for them. Instead of saying, must be nice, say, you know what? Good for them. I'm happy for that person to make that choice. This is a choice that all of us can make when it comes to that jealousy, that envy, that covening. We can make the choice to redirect and say, you know what? I'm going to choose to be happy for that other person. It's a choice we can make, but it does not come naturally to us. Let's take a look at this passage that Lori read for us from Genesis 4. Let me give you a little bit of history. We've been covering this, this journey of Adam and Eve past couple weeks. And so Adam and Eve, they wanted to be like God, and so they ate from the fruit of this tree that was supposed to make them like God, and so this was the one restriction that God gave them, the one rule that they broke. They ate from this tree, and God approached them and said, what happened? They did not accept responsibility, but they played the blame game. They blamed the snake. Adam blamed the woman. Adam blamed God, and so they were not accepting responsibility for their own wrongdoing. Ultimately, they are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, not allowed to go back. And so that's what happened. As time goes on, Adam and Eve have kids. Their firstborn is Cain. Their secondborn is Abel, a couple of brothers. And that's where we pick up with this story. Apparently, and and not everything is spelled out, but contextually, apparently we know that God must have required Cain and Abel to present him with sacrifices. So God had commanded. It must have been something he required because we see them doing it. It must have been a requirement, something he told Cain and Abel to do. And so they're bringing him sacrifices. And back in those days, the sacrifices that were brought to God, that was purely and strictly an act of trust and faith. Because it's not as if they were bringing food before God and then that food was going to feed the poor because there were no poor. It wasn't like that. It was was purely an act of faith. Let me bring you these animals. Let me bring you this grain. Let me bring you the fruits from the field and burn them up before you as an act of trust and faith. I trust that I'm going to sacrifice this to you and you're going to allow me to live off the rest. It was purely an act of trust and faith. And so here we are in the course of time, Genesis chapter 4, beginning with verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought some, he brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel, the younger brother, also brought an offering, but his offering is different. It's not described as some. How is his offering described? Fat portions. Woo! He brought the fat portions from some of the firstborn 
of his flock. He gave the first fruits, the finest, the best was given to God. And so there's a comparison. Cain gave some. Abel gives big old chunky fat portions from the first fruits, the firstborn. Okay? So there's a comparison being made here. And so the Lord looked on favor, looked with favor on Abel and his offering. Oh God, God, you're not supposed to show favoritism. What are you doing, God? Well, it's not as if he's showing favoritism. It's just that Abel showed more faith, showed more trust, brought forth a bigger, fatter sacrifice, and God favored that, right? Somebody did what was right, and God showed favor, showed his favor on Abel. Verse 5, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Oh, you brought some. Okay. And so there are the two brothers. Abel brings his offering. Cain brings his offering. And Abel's the one that gets the pat on the back. Abel's the one that gets the attaboy, well done. And Cain does not get that praise, does not get that favor, does not get that attention, does not get that attaboy. Now, to make things more complicated, Abel's the younger brother. You older siblings know what that's like? When your younger brother is getting some kind of praise or attention that you're not getting, do you know what that's like? Just, oh, it's just me. It's just me then? Yeah, I know what that's like. Oh, you're going to give my brother credit. You're going to give my brother praise. Well, here I am over here. What did I do? What am I, chopped liver? Did you feel that way? All right, maybe it's just me. So you have this dynamic between the two brothers. And so how does Cain feel? So Cain was very angry. There's your answer. Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And, of course, the Lord God notices this. The Lord God said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Here's what coveting does in the human heart. These are brothers, literal biological brothers. And this coveting, I wish I had that praise. I wish I had that attention. I wish I had that favor from God. I wish I had that pat on the back that Abel got. Coveting causes us to see other people as our competitors, as our adversaries, and maybe even our enemies. Why do you get to have that and I don't? And God speaks to Cain and says, Cain, Cain, no, no, no. Well, don't, don't be, don't, no, 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 no. Why are you looking downcast? Why are you angry? All you have to do, Cain, if you want the attaboy, if you want the pat on the back, if you want the favor, all you have to do is do what's right. Next time the sacrifices are due, you know, come on, don't bring me some. Bring me the best. Bring me your best next time, and then you'll get the same pat on the back that your brother got, okay? That's all you have to do. Don't be angry at him. Don't, don't let this happen. And so there's this visual that God gives to us of sin kind of crouching at the door, right behind the door, in like a wrestling stance. Is this a wrestling stance? I don't know. Is, okay. It's a wrestling stance right behind the door. It's crouching at the door. Just open the door, and boom, it's going to pounce on top of Cain and overcome him. God says, you have a choice you know, let this overcome you, or are you going to rule over your sin, over your coveting? Because coveting begets anger, and anger begets, well, all kinds of bad things. And so Cain had a choice. He had a choice. He said, you know what? Good for Abel. Good for my little brother, all right? You know what? He did a good thing. 
He showed faith, he showed trust, he brought God his best, and he deserved that pat on the back. He deserves God's, God's favor. And you know what? Next time around, I'm going to follow my baby brother's example, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. But he doesn't do that, does he? What does he do instead? He lets that covenant take over his heart. He does not rule over that sin, but instead that covenant, that jealousy, that, that envy grows in his heart. And what does this man do to his brother? I mean, they're, they're, they're on the same team. They're brothers because he has this covenant, because he now sees him as an opponent, as an adversary, as an enemy. What does he do to his brother? He, he kills him. He murders his own brother. And God warned him. God told him the solution up front. He said, listen, just, just next time, do what is right. We have this choice to make when it comes to covenanting. We're going to let this get in our way because here's what's up. You know, it, it's true for all of us. When we feel that way about somebody else, like, that person has what I want. Listen, that coveting, you know this already. It robs you of your peace. It robs you of your contentment. And it causes you to see that other person, you know, the person that has what you want. You see that other person as your opponent. You feel anger towards them. Why? Because they have something that you wish you had? It gets in our way. It robs us of our peace. And it causes fractured relationships. And in some cases, the end of relationships. We see that other person as our opponent, not our brother and our sister. And here's what's up. I don't know if we have any Christians listening to me this morning, but Christians, listen, coveting, it gets in your way of being able to do the one thing that Jesus told us to do, the one thing that he just repeated over and over and over and over again, to love one another. How are you going to love somebody? How are you going to love somebody if you're coveting what they have, if you wish you had what they have? How are you going to love somebody if you're coveting what they have. It gets in our way. It robs us of our peace. It causes us to see our brothers and sisters as opponents, as enemies. All right, so let me ask you this. Where are you coveting right now? Where are you coveting right now? I mean, maybe you walked into this building this morning and thought, well, I'm not coveting. Everything's going just fine in my life. I don't have that in my heart. But I want you to think about maybe some less obvious, obvious examples because there's the frivolous stuff. There's the wishing you had somebody else's vacation or car or home or stuff like that or wishing you had the praise. Yeah, there's some obvious things, but then there's less frivolous and less obvious things that we can covet. I can tell you this story from my life, being 18 years old, and, and at that time, I felt like, this wasn't the case, but I felt like all of my peers had the advantage of somebody else paying for them to go to college, and I didn't. I had to work, and I had to wash dishes, and I had to work two different jobs, and I'm working hard, and they get to party while I'm stuck in the back of the kitchen, smelling like garlic and sweat, because they've got somebody else paying. Why do they get to have that, and I don't? That was a real feeling that I had. And you might be thinking, well, Josh, that's not frivolous. That's a real thing. That's, that's higher education. That's a, that's a wonderful thing to want. Yes, but it's still coveting. See, even if what you're wanting, even if what you're coveting after is, is something important or something valuable, something not frivolous, coveting is still coveting, and it still robs us of our peace, 
And it still causes relational strife. Even, listen, even if what you're coveting after is a good thing. My goodness. What about this? Let me lay this scenario out for you. Okay, listen, there's so much. I mean, listen, you think about the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich and just the gap that exists between them. My goodness. You think about this, that this poor person living in poverty, literally dying in a ditch from a preventable disease. And at the other end of the wealth spectrum, you've got somebody like the Queen of England or Jeff Bezos, and I'm pretty sure they're friends, or somebody like that. They've got all this money. They've got access to the absolute best doctors, the best health care, the best medicine, the best treatment, right? How old was, what was what's the Queen of England's husband, Prince uh, Philip, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, right? Died at 99 years old, was driving in his 90s. The best possible health care. Meanwhile, this guy over here is dying in a ditch of a preventable disease. Nobody in this room would fault that person down there for covenanting what the wealthy have. None of us would fault that person. And yet, coveting, and yet, coveting, still coveting, even if what you're coveting after is a need. I need health care. I need water. I need food. I need shelter. Coveting is still coveting, and it's still robs us of our peace, and it still causes us to view others as our enemies, as our opponents. Essentially, God gives each one of us the same options that He gave to Cain. He's like, listen, you can allow yourself to be overcome by this, or you can choose to rule over your coveting. You can choose to rule over it. We can make that choice to be happy for what that other person has. And just because we're lacking something, maybe it's something frivolous, maybe it's something that's important, maybe it's something that's a need, even though we're lacking, we can make a choice to be content with whatever it is we have, however much or however little, and not worry about what other people have. Not let that get to us and make that choice to say, you know what, good for them, good for them. It's not easy to do, and it does not come naturally it's a choice that we can make. You know, all throughout this series, I've been really letting you know about how we make these choices and, you know, we have a default mode, we have a nature, but we can be better than our default mode, we can be better than our nature, we can make a choice, we can exercise discipline and intentionality, and that's very important, all right? Like, I'm a big fan of discipline and intentionality and effort and all that, but here's something so important I need to communicate with you all as we, as we bring this series to a close. I just need you to know this. Christianity is not about receiving Jesus as your Savior and then trying to be better. I don't want you to think that because so many people walk away with that idea about Jesus. Well, I'm going to accept Jesus as my Savior and now I'm just going to exercise a lot of discipline and a lot of intentionality and I'm going to do my best to, to modify my behavior. Listen, Christianity is about more than that. Last week I referenced the fact that Jesus has presented us with multiple gifts. It's not just the gift of eternal life. He's also given us the gift of His way, His approach to life. And beyond that, He gives us an even bigger gift, a gift that's truly supernatural. Jesus extends to each one of us the gift of transformation of becoming something new. We're born a certain way, we have a certain nature, and then Jesus, if we let Him, will transform us. We become 
something new. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, He uses a term just once, just one time, called born again, or born of another, born from above. And He explains to this religious leader named named Nicodemus how, yes, everybody comes into this world, we have a certain nature about us, but then, then we need to be born a second time. We need to die and then become something new. Peter uses that same term, terminology about being born again, being changed somehow. Paul, throughout his letters, talks about this. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in, crea- in, in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has arrived. We become something new. In Romans 8.29, Paul talks about this being conformed reshaped into the image of Jesus Christ. Do you hear what I'm saying? Christianity, it's not just about saying yes to Jesus and then trying to behave yourself. It's about allowing ourselves to be changed by Jesus, to have our nature changed. Many years ago, I was in a Bible study because that's what Christians do. I was in a Bible study. And we got to talking about human nature And somebody made the comment, and I wrote it down in that moment. They said, human nature doesn't change unless something changes it. Unless something changes it. So here's the deal. Apart from Jesus, apart from this transformation, apart from Jesus, you can do your best to overcome coveting and all kinds of sins. And you can do your best to be a good person and a decent person and a charitable person and a kind person. You can do your best. But you can't change your nature. Only Jesus can change who you are. Only Jesus can transform you into the person you were always meant to be. That's supernatural. Let me say that again. Only Jesus can transform you into the person you were always meant to be. Let's pray on that. Father, free us. Free us from coveting, from jealousy, from envy, from anger. I pray that you would give us a new heart. A heart that can celebrate the victories and successes of others. Father, don't let us view our fellow human beings as adversaries or competitors. Free us from all that so that we can actually love one another. Lord Jesus, give each one of us an openness to having our nature changed by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.